Welcome to Train Rush, your pungent, overpowering beer of train game podcasts, brought to you by your hosts, Craig Taylor and Dave Moss. So Dave, I guess we'll start with our usual question. Have you played any interesting games over the last few weeks? Um, so we've had, uh, we've had a couple of games of 1893 Cologne from Marflow. That was good. I think you played something super interesting recently, didn't you? Yeah, I played um, the copy of 1828 that JC Lawrence kindly sent us to have a fessel with. Bit too early for me to say anything definitive right now, but primarily because I was probably playing some of it wrong. But the version of 1828 I was playing was incredibly mentally intense. It's big, would be the key word I'd use. Yeah, and, and, and I think we, we have a copy each, and yeah, I've read the rules and got myself thoroughly confused at that point. I think it looks like a really epic kind of game with lots going on. Uh, I'm very keen to, for you, you to use that in the next playthrough so I can join you. Indeed, well... By the time we've covered that, it'll probably be season three, but at some point there'll be coverage on the show, be it audio or us typing into random forums somewhere. The other thing we played together, Dave, was 18CZ. Yes, we revisited that, didn't we? It was good good, good to see it again. Yeah, I'm probably a little bit warmer towards it than my memory uh, had me going. I, to a certain extent, I've always found 18CZ a little bit, I don't want to say mundane, but perhaps procedural and... I actually found a lot more to like in it coming back to it down the line than I expected. Well, I was going to say hold on to some of those thoughts because I'm pretty sure that's that's going to be a future episode that's maybe not as far away as 28. Yeah, but indeed, yeah, sure, that could be in the more near-term horizon. That sounds reasonable. And I think we, we have some other news as well, don't we? Do you want to do you want to tell our good listeners about um, some sure. of the latest train rush hijinks? Sure. Yeah, I, I hate the old begging bowl bit, but we'll do it anyway. We've set up a Patreon. Primarily because the editing of the podcast is the thing that slows us down the most. And it's a thing where I think we deliver the least value to our listeners. So by outsourcing said editing, by paying somebody money, frankly, uh, we can concentrate on racking up the plays, thinking about the games, and all the value-add stuff that we can do that an editor can't. But yeah, basically we can just talk more, I think, is the long and short of it, isn't it? Sure, absolutely. I mean, I'd like to be able to release 12 plus, key operates on the plus there, episodes a year. And, you know, this is a way of making that happen. Indeed. So, so to those of you who have already supported us, thank you kindly. We really do appreciate the support. If this is the first you've heard of Patreon and you're inclined to contribute towards our editing costs, obviously we'd be grateful to have you on board. Otherwise, if you just want to carry on listening for free... We're fine with that too. Like I say, we're more than happy to talk. So Absolutely. We're grateful for all listeners. And as you say, it, it's especially generous of those who are willing to support our journey a little bit as well. So after that three minutes express preamble, let's go into the actual coverage for the episode. Indeed. What are we talking about today, Craig? So today, because we are a, clearly just a winsome podcast and it's the only thing we're going to cover now, we are covering last year's Winsome 18XX 1834 designed by John Borer we don't even need to say Eddie Robbins anymore the curtain's been lifted we know who the Wizard of Oz is and it is an 1830 derivative Kel Surprise set in Belgium it's the usual Spartan stuff consisting of uh, paper map cubes craft paper shares and um, some okay tiny illegible tokens but you're paying for the design Dave yeah yeah absolutely you're paying for Eddie Robbins' intellectual property and if that design is is worth it to you then there's a rails on board upgrade kit available for this one that replaces the token collateral which in all fairness i won in the competition full disclosure and it's quite nice so 
and I think you know, as you say, it's it's what you expect to get with a Winston production. Um, you know, the game is functional; it relies on you having a copy of eighteen thirty. But you know, it serves a purpose, and and you know, it's their business model, and it's been very successful over many years. So. Well, was their business model like so with John Bora hanging up the uh, craft paper shears? And the uh, printing press, we'll see what what that translates to in the future. Probably more licensing arrangements with Rio Grande and such like. What I'd say is this one is reasonably easy to upgrade yourself if the spirit takes you. Hopefully off the back of this episode, you'll work out if that is going to be worth your time. So let's get into the thrust of it. Let's use our usual format, Dave, of talking through the game stages as if we were playing a game. So I'm just going to start with a brief broad overview. It is, as I said, it's an 1830 derivative. It is a reasonably short-running one. It's not the shortest running of ones. It's not as short as 1879. You're talking kind of three, four hours. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think we, we've played it on a, a weeknight quite a number of times. As you say, it takes the entire evening, three to four hours. But um, yeah, it's it's entirely playable in that spectrum. And I think you know, that is part of the design brief, isn't it? You know, a lot of the Winsome games are designed to be those slightly shorter, slightly quicker experiences usually sitting on the edge cases somewhere of how the, the, the constructs of an 18xx works. Sure, it supports three to five players, and ostensibly it's best at three players. So, that's, that's according to BGG, Dave. I can't disagree oh, with BGG and all X contributors, probably less than 10, but let's move swiftly on. Indeed, we, we can argue that later on, I think, in our summation. So, the first thing that's going to happen, Dave, is a private auction. You have six private companies, and they have a number of different powers. So you've got the Ostend Port Society. If you run to Ostend, you increase the value of your run when you go to the Ostend Port. You've got the coal company, De Kempen. That allows you to place a mountain hex tile at half cost. You've also got the Burback Foundry. Again, another one that uh, brings some track benefit upgrades. So this allows you to upgrade a track tile in Luxembourg, and that goes in addition to the company's normal track lay. Well, to be clear, it's in or near Luxembourg. I think it's the Luxembourg hex and the one next to it, isn't it, or something like that? It is indeed, yeah. But primarily, I think people use it for the Luxembourg value upgrade. Sure. You've got the... MNBS, SMCB, basically the electrification of the Belgian-French railway network. Now, this is an interesting one. So this this is not one that uh, works in the usual way of a private. This just doesn't pay the owner any money. This can't be sold into a company. However, what it does do at the the purchase of the first six train, I believe, or is it the removal of the fours? It's the removal of the fours, sorry, as you start on the silver phase. That will give the owner a free T2T train. Well, that one's hard to say. (laughs) But it gives you a 2T train. We'll talk about what that train does later on. Um, And obviously, you can give that to one of the companies that you own, therefore potentially obligating your permanent train purchase in a very easy fashion. You have the Cockerell Locomotive Company. This one allows you to uh, to sell it to a company as normal, and then you close it by uh, when you purchase a train at half price. So again, that, if timed well, can be quite a helpful purchase. Uh, you have the Albert Canal. That connects Antwerp and Liège, and as soon as those two towns, cities are connected by track, that immediately closes. So those, I think, are the six privates. The auction works in the same normal way. You know, it's 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 buy the lowest available one or bid on one above that in the order. And, and obviously, if there are bids when it comes to resolving, then you have a private auction between the players who've bid. If not, then it goes to the only player who has a bid on it at that point. Now, I'd like to expand on some of those descriptions, Dave, if I may. Of course. So the Ostend Port Society is slightly more exciting than it seems. 
because one of the features in this game is the privates can often be bought in during the yellow phase, meaning things such as the Ostend Port Society increasing the revenue on the port terminus. Happening from yellow, it makes a company that has that private bought into it earn brown level money early in the game early from the game which is huge for shares and there is at least one company that starts in a very good position for that sure and we'll come to that with the company structure of course but the interesting thing there is isn't so much the amplification of the type of off-board terminus it's more the timing that you can do it from yellow yes the ability to to increment value early the electrification one's also interesting because not only is it a pocket 2t train but it creates an interesting incentive on the player who has it because it pays no revenue so it costs you 100 to get it pays no revenue as a private and not only that it takes up a share slot so in the higher player count games that player very much has an incentive to make sure the 2t's come out push the train rush through sure because you can't sell that private in it will just eat that share slot until until it disappears until and, it pops and i think in one of our early games because i think we're i think very clearly playing a little bit suboptimally that really didn't happen until right at the bitter end of the game and so, so I think I had it actually in that game and I was sat with it taking up a share slot all the way through and then in the very last OR as the bank was breaking suddenly I managed to free that up but of course didn't manage to bring in the extra share to, to offset the, the benefit. It doesn't hurt you so much in the lower player count games because yeah. you obviously you've got more space for shares and the cost of shares doesn't scale necessarily. Your available capital does but you may choose to deploy that against higher value shares for instance. And talking a little bit about the ones that give you track benefits so I think you know Terrain cost is expensive, so therefore the one that's going to give you the half-price mountain, that's that's very useful, I think. Particularly certain sections of the board have got heavy terrain on. Is it? I, one half-price mountain, when you look at the map layout, it's so dense. Like, there's so many mountains there. To punch through those mountains, you're clobbering your coffers. You're virtually dropping them in half with most companies. So the one half-price mountain barely touches the sides. I almost think the value of that one is exclusively in its raiding value for selling it into a private company and getting share money out. I've very rarely used it for doing the mountain lay. But, you know, I'm, I'm not saying we're necessarily the paradigm of correct play, but that doesn't seem like the strongest private of this suite to me. The half-price loco always seems good. Yep. I get to buy the company in, and the bank will pay for that raid later by discounting the train the company would have bought anyway. It lets you jump out of lock shift on the trains. It's kind of like pocket money that people aren't quite aware of. Yeah, and I think, you know, it, it pays you well in the meantime. And as you say, that, that deferred cost of a train, I mean, particularly if you're getting it around about face value or, or a very small bit over it, you know, it, it's very worthwhile and, and certainly you see your money later in the game. And I think, I think that's one of the things with these privates is you've got potentially higher costs than you see in other 1830 derivative games for them initially. But most of them will pay back at some point through the course of the game. It's a question of how long you're prepared to sit and wait for that value realisation. Well, as we've mentioned, 1830 again. I'm saying it three times in the mirror and Francis Tresham will come out and grab you. I've got to say, the effort put into these privates to make them interesting, to provide texture that's different to the 1831s, is noted. Very much so, yeah. That these definitely create a different feel. They aren't a clone of the 1831. Some some, some games that are, that are based on you know 1830 and the map just clone the privates and rename them and rebadge them. The 1836 Junior, right? One of my favourite ones. Yeah. But for what it does in terms of, of the 1830 unashamed clones, but yeah, that one is just rename the privates for the companies and the region concerned. 
and I think talk about the last one, and then I think how that possibly lines up a little bit with strategy. The the Albert Canal um, again that pays pretty well, sits mm. with the player, and, and you can make quite a bit of money out of it. But ultimately, I think it's one of those things where it drives the strategy of either you know, a lot of these privates drive the strategy of either the player owning them or the players that don't own them, and that's one where you know the other players want to be forcing that to close because the person who's sitting on that. Let's come back to that in the sense that I agree with the premise. Okay, that's the premise is with the B&O in, a, in another game, you, you want to close that. You want to close that by forcing the company to open the company somehow, be it by trashing his stock prior to flotation or actually forcing them to open and therefore buy a train, therefore lose the revenue. Yep. With this one, you can only close it by doing map play. I'm not convinced that's massively viable. Let's circle back to that when we talk geography. Sure, no, yeah, I, I think that's a fair point. But, you know, the underlying point there around a lot of these privates drive strategy in the games are back to the Ostend port. Mm. If you've got that one, generally you're potentially looking at a very specific company to make it work. Now, interestingly, we had a game, I don't know, a week ago, a week and a half ago, as we were doing one of our prep playthroughs, and, and actually we all bought privates, and then we all did totally different things to what the strategy should have dictated. That actually played out very interestingly, I thought, but I think, you know, they, they do help drive what you're trying to do as a player, uh, and certainly give you some good signposts and cues as to where you're where your play should be, what companies you should be looking for, what do they align well with. Would you agree with that? Broadly speaking, I think there's been an attempt here to create interesting incentives that are different to those you see in 1830, that once you've played it a few times, should drive players' behaviours in certain directions, be it things they do on the board, shares they buy, companies they try and float. And and I think counter-behaviour of the other players. So you Mm. see somebody has the Ostend private and the company that fits very well with it. You want to be trying to hurt that company and that player as much as you can. You can't let them run a fleet of two trains for too long because they'll get a disproportionate amount of value versus the investment and they'll make bonds of money to buy shares up with. Yeah. Similar situation, although arguably with a longer tail with the Lux company on the east side of the board, if somebody starts that, and this isn't linked to a private, but if somebody starts that, you can't let the, the twos and the threes run too long either. So, moving on from that, let's talk about the board and the geography of the game. So, it's set in Belgium. I think, you know, it, it encloses Belgium as you go through the map. I wouldn't say it's a a small map or, or potentially a big map. I think it's probably medium size. would you agree? It's broadly similar in scale to 1830, but you've got far fewer companies operating on it. So, it feels bigger. Yeah, you've, it feels, feels very wide, doesn't it? I you've, think. you've got the one tile lay per company restriction. There's very few ways of subverting that. And with only five companies laying the track, that east-west distance can feel huge at times, especially if you're a company that's trying to chase into someone else's value network. Yeah, and I think, you know, where the companies are located are quite key. You know, a couple of them sort of seem to spring up in tandem. Again, you know, it's the kind of thing where you don't want one player to control both of those or they get a really big benefit out of that. And then a couple of things that sort of dotted a little bit further around the edge. Thinking more about the the edge of the board, there's some, some interesting stuff around sort of off-board locations as well. Belgium is hemmed in to the north with the Netherlands and to the south with France. You can't connect the same off-board location to the same one, so you can't run Netherlands to Netherlands via Belgium, but you can run cross-board. So you can use Belgium as the, as the intermediary there and run between the Netherlands and France. Uh, and there's a small, I think it's a 20 euro, uh, 20 Belgian franc potentially in this era, uplift on your run if you are connecting those north-south offboards. Yep, that's true. The only other aspect is, what we talked to earlier, is there is an offboard to the west, 
the uh, it's a port terminus and it couples to that Austin Port Society. You can connect that to either a north or south offboard. And I think you've also got so, so the two major cities in, in, in the game are Antwerp. Um, there are some additional tiles for Antwerp that are not in the standard 1830 set. You know, it gives it good value, but it's primarily about opening up token slots and opening up access to Amsterdam. It's uh, not Amsterdam, apologies, Antwerp. It's one of those choke points value centers in the game that, that's, you know, well monitored through it. It's the only custom tile that features in the game, as I think you just said, Dave. The other major revenue city, it's, I quite like this approach, it's interesting. So Brussels just uses the normal tile progression from 1834 cities, but it pays double the printed revenue which is kind of fun. It gives you flexibility in terms of whether it's going to be an X or a K um, in the green phase, yet it pays off um, like a capital city should in a game of 18xx. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's, I think it's the, clearly the richest value city in the game and again we'll talk about the impact of of that doubling of the value a little bit later on. Um, whilst we're talking... There's one thing we forgot to mention, actually, Dave. Sorry. Antwerp pays 30 during the yellow... So during the green phase, if it's not upgraded. So it starts the game paying 20 in the yellow phase. Even if you leave it alone, it gets a slight value upshift. It's a very, very minor thing. But what I would say is it makes a rich part of the board even richer. Yes, because again, it's quite close to that Brussels centre, and it's um, yeah, you can put some good shuttle runs. I think I was going to also mention one of the one of the other uh, unique rules of this one. It's around tile upgrades. So when you're in the green phase of the game, you as either a player or as the president of the operating company may pay fifty euros Belgian francs. I'll settle on which one of those it is eventually, and you can instantly lay the green tile on the board rather than having to do the yellow to green progression. Yeah, green fever. It's interesting in so much as I often forget about it, but shouldn't because it really does have the potential of opening up routes much more quickly. Or if you're starting a company in that window, you can, and its home station isn't yet laid, you can get a better home station straight off the bat, pointing in more directions. It's a nice feature, but especially like the fact that the president can pay for it out of their pocket. That's kind of fun. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think, you know, Given that the two trains are going to be bust through pretty quickly, you're usually in their very early ORs in the game. So, as you say, it allows value increase on the board pretty quickly and also opening up access as well, because obviously, as we know, they bring more access spokes into any tile when we go through phases. Hmm. So let's talk to the companies that sit on that geography then, Dave. I think without that context, the geography is almost meaningless. Indeed. So there's two companies that sit near the centre of the board. Uh, there's the... Ant Yellow Company. The Antwerp. Yep. It's set up for extracting value pretty much all the way through the game as it's situated in Antwerp, which is a high pain city, and it's adjacent to Brussels bar a double dick tile, right? Yeah, it's it's two tiles away from it, so it's in Brussels very early in the game. Sure, nothing's going to beat that race if it makes the effort to go that way, and there's no reason for it not to make the effort to go that way. It's only floors, it's only got two station tokens, so use them wisely. I can tell you which two places they're going pretty much straight away. I think we may have mentioned those already, yeah. <laughs> Indeed. And then the, the second company is Mon. Uh, it's set Mons. Up, is it Mons? Oh, you, can, you can correct me on all these. I'm using the uh, three-letter acronyms from uh, the tokens. It's green, which is obviously important, and <laughs> set up to extract value from the capital as well. The thing with this one is a little bit further away, and if Antwerp wants to be hostile with the placement of the Brussels tile, we'll angle it in a, such a way that it doesn't benefit Mon then Mon's going to struggle with early game value. Principally with a tiny bit of collusion, 
it can get into Antwerp pretty easily. Yeah, and I think, you know, certainly in the last game we had, uh, you know, we were able to kind of lock that central spine of the board out between Antwerp and Mons via Brussels pretty quickly, pretty easily, and those two companies enjoyed the fruits of that very quickly. I've also seen games where Mon gets sort of cut out and gets his life made a little bit more difficult for a short period, and it's a short period where you're earning capital to buy shares, so it's quite key. The thing I'd say about Mon is for that extra risk, you get an extra station token, Dave. Both of those companies are set very well, particularly if that spine gets built, to do that north-south, off-board, off-board run. They're basically having their station tokens in the same places, right, yeah. in a lot of games. Bar the fact that Mon will have an extra one down south to secure an off-board run. Antwerp will have that run at risk, but honestly, you'll have made so much money in the early game, you probably won't care. Yeah, and so moving on, the next company, I think, is the Blue Company, and always one that I will look at. And that's the Ostend Company, or the Ost, as you will call it. Yeah, um, sure. And and unsurprisingly, and as we hinted at earlier, the, the Ostend Company pairs very well with the Ostend Port Private. Somebody thought about that as they named them, didn't they? But uh... Indeed, it's handy to have names that line up. The interesting thing with that terminus, the Port Terminus that is literally adjacent to it, it has two connections into it. So you can get the private bonus that pays kind of, you know, brown phase money, from the yellow phase, you can get it twice with two, two, two trains. trains. In fact, you have two, two trains and pick up some other value elsewhere around there as well. Yeah, particularly if you couple that with that ability to put that green tile in very early in the game with that 50 franc euro outlay, you can be running those two trains quickly into that port very easily. But his thing, Dave, has anybody ever actually let you do that for more than a couple of ORs? Because every time I've played it, and it's been quite a few times, that gets shut down pretty quick. You oh, yeah. seem to be blasting through those two trains pretty say, darn early. The, the other players pulling the trains out is what, what scuppers that plan. Um, but again, that's the thing, isn't it? You should say you have to, you have to, as the rest of the players, drive around some of those challenges that are, that are pretty open and transparent in the game. And certainly when you see it happening pretty quickly, you're like, well, I've got to shut that down and make sure that doesn't happen anymore. I mean, Ost benefits from having a few twos, whereas its brother to the east that I'll talk to now, Lux, also benefits from having a few twos. Lux starts on the Baltimore type tile. It has plenty of off boards near it and a quick cheeky north south connection bonus. It can make crazy value early game too. However, it's also um, positioned to make great late game value. The issue it's got is it's got less access to the key value centre, Brussels Antwerp, whereas Ost's a bit closer. Yeah, Ost is a couple of tile lays out of that real core thing. Lux is right out on the other end of the board, but has has. And has mountain ranges to cross to get there. Hence some of those privates, maybe. Yeah, maybe. But the thing with Lux is, with the right trains in it, you just run it cold to the end of the game. If you, you can get those couple of five trains in there, it can run those north-souths for decent bonuses. Or if you can get the doubler train in there and a five train, you get good enough revenue from it. Oh, the doubler train was a bit of a hint there. We haven't talked about that yet. We'll come back to that later on. Sure. Well, do you know what? Let's talk to the last private then. Last, the last la- company. Last private. Well, heavens. The last company. The Liège. L-I-E. The Lie. I'm not really sure about this one, Dave. It's the ugly red token stepchild of the game companies. <laughs> it seems like a briefcase option, except it's lumbered with a horrible duty that it has to try and shut down the uh, big private Antwerp Liège private yeah, yeah so, so you've got to start it at some point to shut that down you'd argue but whoever starts it suffers such a big personal cost you're just better off waiting for the five trains to shut down that big private anyway 
Yeah, I, th- I think if you're pushing the train rush, it goes well. I think it's an interesting one. As you say, it has masses of briefcase potential, but it also has masses of briefcase risk. It's very easy that people could get it connected. Yeah. It plays very well with the Luxembourg. It's quite close to where it starts, a little bit like Antwerp. And They can both do half the work to connect through the mountain range, I guess you could argue. And I think in quite a lot of plays, we've seen people, rather than briefcasing it, more often than not, they've, uh, they've paired it with the Luxembourg and created a second value centre in the board that people haven't really got input into. The issue I have with it is if you start it early game to shut down that big private as soon as possible, you are taking a massive personal share hit in terms of revenue and you're not going to be able to buy many shares. You could sell it down, you'd argue, but then there's an opportunity cost there. If you've started started Liege, you haven't started something else that will actually directly make you money. If you start it late enough that the networks have been built for it to tap into, it's interesting, but it's still quite a way out from the value networks. Whatever way you dress it up, it's close in terms of lux, in terms of distance, but there's those mountain ranges. It's quite far away from the Ant-Brussels thing. It's only about as close as, as the Ost is, but it doesn't make the early game value. It's a very strange company, and it's one which seems to be in a game which features very few companies for you to hop between. It's the one company that you may hop to towards the end, the, the choice of desperation. Yeah, and I think, you know, with only five companies, you've got to be sure of what you're doing. Quite often, I think, as you say, that that uh, Liège companies come into the game very late as as the second opening for somebody to either try and get into a, that Luxembourger value centre or, or to, to try and just agitate things. My fear is, more often than not, when I've seen it started, the player who has started it has suffered a massive personal wound. I wonder if it's one of those things where, you know, the idea and the intent's great, but actually, it's just, like I say, it's a vestigial limb of the game that's there, but just as a company and nothing more interesting than that. A company, albeit with kind of quite significant risk to the person starting it. These are all set very uniquely, as, as we kind of tried to talk about as we've gone through each of them, how they're, how they're impacted by board geography, by the privates as such. So, you know, that that's one that really feels a little bit out on a limb because it's less impacted with others, but actually is one that you you want to be using to potentially close that private, as you say, or to drive other people out. You've got to run it on fumes, I think. What it's trying to do with the closing the Antwerp, the canal company rather, the Albert Canal Company, is interesting and arguably important, but it's quite hard to execute. And actually, I've won without the Albert Canal Corporation. I've won with it, and it closes in brown anyway. I do wonder if it's just eminently ignorable. That's my fundamental worry there. Is it just something that should be part of the game in the way the rules are structured and what's implied in terms of those incentives that are mapped out for you? But in reality, you just ignore it and carry on. I think, you know, our playtests haven't given us completely empirical evidence. We'll keep playing it, but we're also keen to hear other people's thoughts, I think, as well. Will we keep playing it? I, this oh, is the thing you see, you're, is you're co- jumping ahead to thoughts. Yeah, then. let's talk trains. Yeah. Let's talk trains. Tra- trains are fun, so we can do this very easily. For those of you who have played 1830... It's the same train ranks as 1830, less one in each tier up until the six trains. Diesels are replaced by two Ts, or oh, I don't know what I'm going to call them, really, one-half doublers. <laughs> kind of, it's kind of a weird one, that. No, um, two, two Ts are fine, but I think we need to explain what they do. We, we kind of alluded to it earlier. They are available after the first six is bought. So yes. they're kind of like other um, games they're where... They're slightly more expensive, I think, aren't they? Oh, they're, seven, they're cheaper than diesels. They're, yeah, se- they're yes, 700. Yes, but they're slightly more expensive than the sixes. Yes, you got it. Yeah, yeah, they're way cheaper than diesels. There's also no trading. You either buy them or you don't. Yes. So what does a 2T do when a 2T could 2T would 
Dave, why don't you tell us about a 2T? <laughs> the 2T, well, they'll basically run two stops, as its name uh, name gives the indication. It will double one of those two stops. Always Brussels, always Brussels. <laughs> exactly, they sit very well with those companies that connect easily to Brussels. And, and also, I think, does it pick up free dits from memory as well? As many dits as you like. The thing that's interesting about it as well, about a little bit themey, you know, it's quite thematic, because they're electric trains, they can't go off-board, Dave. Oh, well, I say they can't go off-board. I mean, electric trains only could go off-board, but they've made the decision that they can only run on cities on the board. Ultimately, they're, they're, you know, they're very powerful, exactly as you say, with Brussels on one end of them, with Brussels having double on the face value of the tile. I think you can run for that one leg for 160 alone before you bolt anything else on. Sure. And they fulfil your obligation for a train, but they do not count against train limit. See... I don't think that's ever been an issue. It could be an issue with that pocket 2T. Right, so if you had the private and you'd done really well and somehow you managed to pack a couple of permanents... And then put a 2T on top. Yeah, then you could put a 2T on top. I think that's the only relevant thing, because more often than not, if you're doing it out of pocket, well, out of the company's pocket, more the point, 700 is a lot of money. Well, we saw that in one of our games, one of of our friends playing, uh, Stuart, he... um, Withheld, 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 because he really wanted the 2T. He was had one of the companies that linked into Brussels. And by the time he generated enough money to get it, I think he maybe ran it once or twice. Yeah. Twice at most. I think the general consensus afterwards is it probably wasn't worth it what it had lost him in, in capital off his 60% holding in the company that he'd withheld in two, three times. It wasn't worth it in terms of his revenue. And then by the time you took into the fact the share depreciation from the withholds, it definitely yeah. wasn't worth it yeah but you know it's a whole it's a lever to pull it's a thing to try Stuart's still just for the context Stuart's a good friend of mine and dave's and he's still exploring the format and coming from a kind of a euro gamer background will pull any lever that he sees to see what it does and we're sticking a lot of new games in front of him with uh, different levers and i'm glad to have someone in our group who's quite willing to do that without worrying too much about the consequences on their performance yeah it's not it's nice not being the only one that pulls every lever available in the box on every game we play and that's not to say that he can't play well when he so chooses that's just to be entirely clear so just briefly just to close it out it finishes in about three four hours do i agree with the bgg consensus that it's best at three yeah, I don't think it's a million miles off. Actually, I've had more. F- I mean, ju- I mean, I know. Appreciate we're starting with the high level stuff first. I've had more fun with it at lower player counts. What about you, Dave? Yeah, no, I think I think three or four is good. Uh, uh, five is interesting, but it's you know you've really got to be on your toes. It's a very different battle. Five players, one of you's getting that Liège company, which as we've already established is a bit of an oddity. Or no company. That's the that's the other issue with five. You you did have one game where you had no company, but I think that wasn't necessarily through choice, was it? No, it was, it was a product of poor play. I ended up with no company because I sat on my hands, waiting, 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 trying to dodge the early part of the game, and then someone goes, you know what? I'll start a second company, and whoops, you know, you've got nothing. You just missed the turn, yeah. yeah. It, but but yeah, no, I, I mean back to the point in question. I think I think three isn't. I I preferred four over three, if I'm honest. Uh, I, I I think it just gave it a little bit more challenge around the table but but yeah it's absolutely the lower player count is is the better one i think so do we think this does what it claims to do i must say it claims to do what we're claiming we think it does well do we think those incentives are interesting do we like you said you said before we're going to come back and play this again is it interesting enough for us to keep coming back and unpack you know we've done we've covered a lot of winsomes now yeah. and i would hope that Certainly speaking for myself, 11 months ago, 
bright-eyed, loving everything that was put in front of me. I think I've got a slightly more discerning uh, lens now to look at these things through. I'm not necessarily sure that every winsome necessarily has merits above every other winsome, if that makes sense. They're not, yeah, sure, they're all unique in their rule sets and their location. Are they necessarily unique in what you would choose to use them for? Is this something you still see the interest in unpacking? So I think for me, it was an odd one. Uh, you know, I, I like the utility of a lot of the winsome games that they play in that sort of two to four hour window. And, and generally, by and large, they try and amplify certain aspects of the game. So the Argentina one is very much around driving bankruptcy and, and you know, making it a very harsh environment. 79, again, is a favourite of ours. With this one, I, you know, I looked at it and I thought, wow, those privates are all powerful, do big, interesting things, set strategy, as we said. And every time I've played it, as I say, it's kind of always felt a little bit flat in a few of those instances. Would, would I play it again? Yeah. And again, particularly because the fact it can be played on a, on a weeknight, you know, in that window. Do we have other options to fit in that? I think we do as well. I don't feel so much excited for this one, Dave. It's one of those ones where on the paper brief, it should be more interesting than it actually is because it plays out broadly the same every time, bar who's sitting in the seats. Is Dave going to be the red company tonight or is Craig? Is Lindsay going to get to have the yellow company tonight? It's pretty much, if it's the only variance is priority deal and who gets to pick companies in what order, I'm not convinced that's something I want to keep playing over and over. Not necessarily on a, like a, oh, let's explore the depth of this rotation. So for me, I'm looking at this going, okay, if the only merit this has above 1830 is that it runs shorter, are there better short options? There are certainly short options that I enjoy more. And I think it doesn't feel like there's a an incentive, a drive to, to drop some of those companies. As you say, almost all of them, barring the red company, work pretty well, generate good value. So, it's, it's, so in my eyes, whereas I'd naturally think of anything on the 1830 side to have a much tighter focus on the stock manipulation elements, almost feels like this is an 1830 engineering one in some senses. Well, in 1830, you can consider it a raft hopping exercise where well, my company's fit to die, I'll hop onto the next raft and hopefully leave that to someone else, best case, or, okay, I'll run it on fumes and I'll try and manage it another way. I'll do some withholds. The shares on the bank pool will keep paying in. I'm on my new raft primarily. And, and I think that's because of the number of companies in 1830. You know, that's, mm. that's the key difference here. You've taken out three companies? Yeah, you have. And five just doesn't feel quite enough for those exercises. Yeah, six would probably be a better number in a weird way. And, and again, I'm pretty sure this is a conscious design decision to put the less companies in there and create the space or the tension in a different way. But yeah, it just it's, it's never quite resonated again. And back on the privates for a second. Sorry, I'm going to go on about that. But sure. I just find the value of them is, you know, the face value is high. You're paying a lot of money. I think I think as we, as we alluded to earlier on, there is the return on that investment ultimately one way or another in the, across the course of the game, but you've got to be prepared to ride the long game for a lot of those and, or, or be trying to pull the money out of the companies to, to, to realise that quickly yourself. Well, my thoughts on the privates are, I think the incentives created by some of them are brilliant, actually like really, really brilliant, and I'd like to see more like it. Like the electric train one creates this really cool incentive for someone to drive the game forward towards the two Ts as quickly as possible. Yep. And... The fact it pays nothing is a nice interesting in terms of revenue is a nice interesting twist. But taken as a whole, they feel a bit wonky. Some of them just feel like you're only going to use them for face value. That's the only 
yield you're going to get. You talked about that mountain one earlier. It just isn't enough of a discount. If it was two mountains discounted or there was part of the range you could pump through with that private uniquely that was thinner. But you're always going to have to add more money to that endeavour and that private's barely going to touch the sides. So really, it's just a case of, oh, it's an expensive private. That helps me with capital transfer. Yeah, no, no, agreed, agreed. The port one's cool. The port one's cool in so much it forces uh, the players to try and drive through the two trains. But arguably, it's nothing that you don't already see elsewhere, albeit not encouraged by a private, right? There's plenty of games where a fleet of 2T trains for, say, B&O, or for, in 1846, B&O with the Steamboat Company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it would, but it, as you say, it's driving the incentive to get those trains in early, push through it, because it realises value. So. But, I do, but I appreciate the fact, Dave, that they aren't just 1830 privates. Mm. Okay? I mean, that's noble. That's interesting. That would make me put it off the shelf. Yeah. But you know what does that better? 1889. 1889 is an 1830 derivative that has interesting privates that aren't just 1830 clones. And and interesting and unique companies. And you could play in that game until you were dead and still probably not see half of what it's got to give, you could argue. I mean, it's certainly deeper than this one. Yeah, and I think it's possibly even maybe you know, a small amount of time quicker, potentially 89. With the right group. With the right group, yeah, yeah. And certainly in the same time window. So, And I think, you know, I'll, I'll ask the other question we always ask every time because I like asking it. Would you use this game to introduce somebody new to 18xx? Possibly. I mean, it's got a good feature that I like for a newer player. I quite like the two Ts. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're dull as an experienced player because you your companies get pegged quickly. Oh, it's the Antwerp Brussels run. We're done. Can I pack another two T in there? We're pegged. There's because those places are adjacent. There's no token play. So two fifths of the companies, those trains are pretty boring. But they are quick to run, and you're not grinding out a new player with extreme math and and, the, and the, the trap of doing recalculations all the time a token goes down, they're very easy to calculate. Actually, fundamentally, I like the idea of them. Forgetting the new people a second. I like the idea of endgame trains that are quicker to calculate than diesels. Yeah, because I think in quite a lot of endgame scenarios, although you've got big, lengthy running trains, you can't run them for full distance. Like 1817 is another one. You know, I think you've got eights at the end of the game. And most of that game is built around sort of, you know, three or four stop runs. So you've got a train that you're just not using the capacity. So, yeah, no, I, th- I think it makes an efficiency there. I actually like the two T's as well. I think they're um, I think they're quite a nice idea. I think they're almost taken too far in so much as because of that Brussels-Antwerp run, they're almost formulaic. That's my only issue with them, right? I think that maybe in a different game, they'd be more interesting where there's more places you can run them. But it, on the whole, I like the intent, if nothing else. And for me, that's probably a recurring theme of this game, right? I like the intent. I, when you read out the brief, I should love this thing. Actually, when I play it, it leaves me feeling slightly cold. And I think, you know, to, to the point of, you know, I think we've talked about before with uh, with introducing new players, sometimes you, you think that just saying, this is a game that's going to resonate with you because of geography and things like that, would we? Would we introduce it to our good Belgian friends, David and Luke? Well, they already play 18xx anyway, so they don't need introductions. I think they've played this one before and weren't mega on it, to be honest. But that's, they can start their own, uh, uh, own uh, non-English speaking podcast. And, uh, I'm sure talk we'll to the talk world to them that. sometime and we'll ask them. Uh, do you know what? That could, be, that could be an interview question for our upcoming trip to Mechlin. What did you think of 1834 as a representation of your transport network? That'd be quite cute. Um, I, w- I would like to say one thing about this one, though, right? Even though I'm not super warm on it right now, I'm certainly going to be putting in the effort to make the shares and the charters and the other bits to dress it up 
above and beyond what comes in the Winsome package. So I can't think it's that bad if I'm going to do that, right? And and I think you know yeah it's it's something that we'll we'll pull it off the shelf periodic and play definitely I think you know it has value in the collection undoubtedly. If you're a collector, here's the thing: I think it's one. If you are a player rather than a collector, you could live without it. Would you say that's fair? I'm not sure. I I understand the point you're driving at. I'm not sure I fully agree because I think if you're a player and you're looking for a series of short 18xxs, then these are the things you want to look out for: the 1889s, this, uh, this you know 79 and all that stuff. So I think would would you use it as a first game? I think we're pretty set on that, so no. But would I use it as a follow-on? Okay, so you've played this. This is some of the basic concepts. Here's another one we can try again. If it's in a weeknight and all that stuff, yeah, I probably would probably would throw this one out. Well, anybody who's listened to the show for a while knows that we have a reasonably soft spot in our hearts at the moment for games that you can do on a weeknight. We probably gave 1879 a higher review in terms of how we felt about it versus many of the analysts out there because we like the brief, you know, the time it runs in the ease of teaching the rules. And sure, the removal of the privates and the auction removes an element, aspects of the depth, but we still enjoyed it as a game and wanted to share that. Here's the thing where I'm going to be slightly contrary, Dave, because we can't always agree. I think if you're saying to someone who's a player primarily and not a winsome collector primarily, should they get this or 1889? I'm going to tell them to get 1889 every day of the week. And... I appreciate a man cannot live by 1889 alone, but you could have 1889, then you could have Steam Over Holland, then you could have 79. And this is pretty far down the list of short, quick running titles for me. Yeah, there's a number that fit that brief, absolutely. And yeah, I mean, but I for me, I appreciate, you know, your your mileage may literally vary. So, yeah. Okay, uh, hopefully that has given you a feeling for 1834. Reasonably quick episode for a reasonably quick game so back to the podcast brief of the train rush so we'll go into our closing notes dave thanks for joining me today that's always a pleasure and listeners thank you for joining us too cheerio you've been listening to the train rush if you'd like to talk to the people behind the show you can reach us on twitter at the train rush you can engage with us via pictures using instagram the underscore train underscore rush you can contact us on Facebook, search for The Train Rush. Alternatively, you can email us, craig at thetrainrush.com or dave at thetrainrush.com. If you prefer your engagement as more of an open forum, why not come to our Board Game Geek Guild, number 3342. Finally, if you'd like to contribute towards the show's running costs, then feel free to look at our Patreon, which is at patreon.com forward slash thetrainrush. Thank you for listening.